For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 706 on today's Entrepreneur. Welcome to the program. It's about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And tonight on the program, we're going to talk to Mitchell Drucker, Druckman of uh, Fresser's on Decary, a place that I've been going to for many years since I was a kid, really. Uh, lots of people have been going to them. It's uh, going to be a great story. A lot of people know them and uh, are, I'm sure, interested to hear. Yep. So we'll get to uh, to Mitchell in just a few minutes. But first, as usual, some of the entrepreneurial news in the headlines over the past week. And uh, a lot of people have been talking about Montreal. So last week we had this study that came out that showed that Montreal is one of the worst places to start a business in the country. Um, add to that the downtown vacancy rate hit, hitting well over 10% now, 10.8%, uh, higher than during the recession of 28 of 2008, rather, uh, according to uh, to uh, real estate services f- firm CBRE Canada. Um, all of this making for. Uh, I guess a continued climate of, um, of uh, I say, at least caution in Montreal? Uh, at the very least. Uh, you know, the, the report comes out. It's You hear a lot of people complaining it's so hard to do business. Most people, most people say it's hard to do business in Quebec. There are all the, the provincial laws and regulations and, dare I say, a little bit of corruption, although that, that's waning, I'm sure. Uh, but but then there, the, the Montreal aspect of it, and I guess I was a little bit, uh, surprised to see Montreal, you know, the CFIB, the, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, rank us 121 out of 121 cities in Canada, because that's that's pretty darn bad. But then you look around the city and you see the infrastructure and you see, uh, which is number one on everybody's kind of hit parade is how, how in the world am I going to keep my retail business, my, you know, do the tourists come to town if the infrastructure itself is absolutely crazy? You know, do you, do people avoid it because of the language? I've heard mixed results. I know a lot of people that come to town and, and don't really worry about the language and, and meet a lot of very nice people. So I don't think that's the issue, but certainly about doing business and getting things done. I think the amount of red tape that has developed over the years is just absolutely monstrous, and that's that's absolutely got to contribute. Uh, there's no, you know, you mentioned the the vacancy or the the real estate. Uh, there, there's a high level of vacancy today. So it's actually good from if you're a renter, if you're, uh, you know, if you want to go out and, and rent some space, uh, you can certainly have your pick. Uh, there's certainly a lot of really nice space that is that has developed uh the vacancy rate that's close to 11 percent in downtown montreal is the highest it's been since the financial crisis of 2008 uh so it kind of it's it's a double-edged sword right it it's saying that well maybe the economy's not doing so well there's too much building uh maybe there maybe there's there's people that aren't uh, that don't can't afford or spend it and the flip side of the coin is well now maybe there's opportunities there's opportunities for movement there's opportunities for people to upgrade um, but that and that you know that can help also kickstart a bit of an economy as people have to spend on moving. So there, there's it's a double-edged sword everywhere. So this is from the Gazette. Montreal was ranked at the bottom of the list that ranked 121 cities with Western Canada leading the way in terms of small businesses. The second straight year that Montreal ranked at the bottom of the list from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It's uh, again, it's it's a terrible statistic. Yet. We still have businesses that thrive and survive. Uh, you know, every week, Dan, we we interview another entrepreneur that has had their issues, but that still remain in Montreal. In Montreal, that still find their niche, that still sell their product and service, but that also realize it's not doesn't just stop at Montreal. 
it's well beyond Montreal. If you're a business that is only sustained and, and doing business in Montreal, you're going to certainly have your issues. But if you're just based here and you know that the business is worldwide, uh, as it has to be, I think that's a whole different issue because the standard of living here, let's put business aside for a second. The standard and cost of living in Montreal is pretty darn good when you're looking comparing against Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary, um, uh, even Ottawa to some degree. So I think that's that's a big incentive from a personal standpoint where people balance it off with their businesses. And uh, the municipal opposition here in Montreal saying that it's time for the city to act, to, to do something to help us spur uh, the growth of small business in uh, in Montreal. What do you think uh, government can do to encourage uh, some of these businesses? Well, there's no doubt that a lot of people in trying to get, a lot of businesses are trying to get breaks on their property taxes. Uh, I think that's something that is... Uh, it's an easy fix, but I don't know if that's really a long-term fix because if you give a break today, well, are you going to need it again tomorrow? Uh, so it's it's nice to hit a pocket today, but if it's I don't know if it's long-term thinking. Uh, so beyond that, it's really stimulating the economy. It's really stimulating uh, how how can we get people back out in the marketplace? Uh, you know, the sales tax is out of is out of the the uh, the hands of the municipality. It's more in the hands of the a bigger government because that can certainly help. But it, there's got to be ways to stimulate, to to add, um, whether it's venues, and, and I'm not talking about the venue on Sean Drepo, that's going to be uh, only ready after our uh, Montreal's birthday. But but certainly try and, and encourage tourism, bring people into the city. Uh, again, whether it's from out of the country, out of the province, or just off the island. How can you, what incentives can you give to bring them into the city? Because I hear so much, so often that people on the South Shore, people in Laval, uh, don't want to come into the city. A, they don't have to. They have everything where they are, but they don't want to because the infrastructure is just so bad. Interesting uh, piece in the uh, Financial Post, similar issue. Uh, small businesses accounted for 80% of job growth in Canada in 2015, 80%. And um, so the, the, the article goes on to explore how can small businesses keep uh, their growth and, in, and, in, uh, and go even further. And they suggest a couple of things. One is more R&D and one uh, looking to more export markets. Well, certainly the backbone of the Canadian economy, I mean, forget the big energy guys and whatever, it is the entrepreneur. It is the small business owner. You look at, at any city, any province, and the number of small businesses, entrepreneurs, retail, wholesale, whatever it may be, there are a ton of them, and that's where the numbers follow. R&D, you know, I'm, I'm a little skeptical at R&D. I like, I like the fact the R&D because it's important for somebody to always be unique and be innovative and try and bring something new to the table. But to me, it's more about going outside the borders. You want to expand your business. There's a big world out there, and it's shrinking every moment. And there are consumers everywhere. It's not just about consumers in your backyard. It's not just about consumers south of the border. There are a lot of them. It's about consumers worldwide, Europe, China, of course, that we've spoken about many times before, but even South America now that has is really coming into the loop. So it is about understanding your product, understanding your service, and realizing that it's needed not just here in Montreal, not just here in Quebec, but certainly throughout the country and beyond. The Bay is going to open some discount retailers in the States. Uh, do you think this is a sign that they're a department store model uh, not quite uh, kind of on the way up, perhaps? It might be. I think they're they're rolling with the times. I think they see that stores, uh, you know, cheaper clothing stores, the H and M's of the world, uh, you know, that you can go in and and buy fashion for ten bucks uh, or what have you. Um, 
I, I think they're they're trying to glean to that market. They're they're floating in the middle. I always believe there's a there's a great market for the lower end and a great market for the high end. It's the middle one that kind of suffers. Uh, certainly in times of of recession uh, recessionary periods. Because during recessionary periods, the, the rich are still rich. They'll still go out and buy their the, the fancy clothes, and they'll still have the, their money to spend on that. But when you're when people are watching their dollars, and they, but they want to stay fashionable, and Montreal is a perfect example because Montreal is is everybody wants to look great. You know, it's uh, there. This is the this is the capital of people that look like their clothes are painted on. So, which is not a bad thing, <laughs> uh, but but certainly it, it's very much fashion forward. Um, but they can't always afford it, so they they cheap out or cheap out. They they go to fashion on a cheaper basis. Now they also sacrifice longevity of the clothing, but that's a choice because fashion changes quickly, anyways. Quick, a few seconds on an HR issue. Uh, this is also from the Financial Post. How to stand out in a group interview? Uh, what do you think about group interviews, both quickly from the perspective of the entrepreneur and from the uh, interview subject? I think they're I think they're probably happening more. I don't know if it's a generational thing. A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of collaboration. The word collaborative working today is uh, is very much in, very much buzz, uh, and I think that's translating into the interview process. But when you're in a group, you know, and sometimes it's easier to stand out when you're grouped than when you're one on one. So I actually think it could be good for the for the real stars out there. I think they have a great opportunity to stand out and not be crazy, stupid stand out, but you know, take initiative and, and make themselves heard and known in a group. I think that's uh, that's something that's very doable and very good for the rising stars. This evening on today's Entrepreneur, we'll chat with Mitchell Druckmann of Pressers. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you on today's Entrepreneur. And this evening, we're chatting with Mitchell Druckmann of Fressers. Mitchell, welcome to CJD. Thank you so much for having me. So for those that don't know Fressers, uh, that uh, place on DeCarry at the corner of Cone St. Catherine, uh, tell us a bit about it. Well, um, Fressers would best be described in two ways. Uh, number one, it's a retail store on DeCarry where we make and sell wonderful homemade prepared foods. Um, everything from salmon teriyaki to all kinds of chicken dishes, um, brisket, dozens of salads. Um, and we actually have 44 feet of refrigerated counter space. Um, and each of those has three levels. So all in all, you're looking at over 130 feet of wall-to-wall fresh-made prepared foods. That's on one side. On the other side, you have the bake area, which has breads, rolls, great cakes, brownies, cupcakes, and the world's best cheese bagels. Um, we also make between 15 and 20 different kinds of homemade soups. Uh, and then we have a whole section where we have hors d'oeuvres and frozen meatballs and stuff like that. So that's one part of Fressers. The second part of Fressers is that we're a caterer. Um, we do home catering, things like home parties, family get-togethers, uh, food for the cottage, as well as we have even done bar mitzvahs and weddings. Um, and we also do corporate catering, such as office meetings, functions, anything that needs food in the office, um, as well as the same thing in hospitals and schools. I, I really should have had dinner before I before I got to the mm-hmm. show, Dan. Uh, so, so tell me, Mitch, you you have been at Fresters. I don't know how, what what was the first time you got to Fresters. When did you start there? It was twenty two years ago, actually. Now, was I, this something you had planned on getting into? How did you how did you get into the Fresters? No. Um, I sort of always had an inkling that I would be in the food business, not really knowing why. Um, I don't know. I enjoyed being in the kitchen with my mom when I was younger, and she was a good cook, and 
I always sort of felt something towards food, but um, I graduated from McGill in 1993, um, and I immediately got hired by a supermarket chain to be a finance manager mm -hmm. in one of their branches. Um, and you, mean, I, you mean like an analyst just crunching numbers? You know, if I knew what they wanted me to do, I could tell you, but <laughs> I, I have no idea why they hired me for that. Um, but they did, and I was in this little cubicle with a guy chain smoking next to me. There was a little office, no windows. I stayed two days and I quit because I could not sit at a desk. I, I just, I hated everything about it. I knew I had to get a job where I wouldn't be sitting at a desk. I needed to be up moving around. Um, and my mother at the time was a customer at Fresher's. Um, and she went in one day and she saw that there was a help wanted sign on the window. So she went in to, to see, and by the way, she went in without my permission. Um, as, as many, <laughs> you know, Jewish mothers do, of course. Yes. But, you know, it turned out, well, she, she went to see if there was a temporary job while I would find whatever it was I was going to do permanently. And, um, they got to, she got to talking with the owner at the time and they were looking for a partner because they were growing. And, um, it really just snowballed from there. I, I went in on a trial basis in November. Um, and by January I was a full partner. So you went in, I mean, you weren't even looking, you kind of got this job and said, Hey, a few months later, you were kind of a partner. I think that's, uh, it's kind of a stumbling in, uh, a yeah. fascinating stumbling in. And when we come back, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk more about that partnership. And of course, where Fressers has been the last 22 years. Mitchell Druckmann of Fressers, our guest this evening on today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to today's Entrepreneur. This evening, we're chatting with Mitchell Druckmann of Fressers. And uh, Josh, kind of an interesting story. I mean, we've had a lot of these entrepreneurs who somehow uh, end up owning businesses by accident and mm -hmm. just to sort of fall into it, and then it becomes uh, their passion. And certainly in this case with Mitchell, you know, went in maybe for a job and and then ended up becoming a partner was that was that something that that you were happily surprised about at the time um yes and no um i was really nervous about it um i wasn't sure if i was ready to be a partner in a business i was pretty young at the time i was only 22 um but i did know that i wanted food and i did know that there's an opportunity there and how often am I going to get an opportunity? So I wanted to, you know, find out as much as I could. And um, after two months, by the time I was there, I mean, I really had a feel for it and I really started liking it. Um, now, you, you didn't you didn't keep your, at some point you took over on your own. How many, how many years in did you take yeah, over? Yeah, the, the original owner was partner with me until January of 97. So he was there with me for three years, just over three years. Um, and I've been alone since. It's coming up on almost 19 years. Now, do you miss having a partner or have you kind of replaced him from somebody to bounce ideas off of? There's times when I sort of wish I had a partner, but the truth is I, I feel like I do have partners. I My staff are my partners. Um, I, I get advice from them, from the people, especially the managers, the head chef. Um, I, I feel like I have, there's 26 people work for me. I feel like I have 26 people who are partners. You know, they might not be officially an owner, but mm -hmm. they're 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 doing the hard work with me. Would you say it's a very collaborative environment? Like, do you ask for their input? They offer it. it uh, absolutely, is, it's is. a very informal. I, I don't know how formal you are as a manager versus. I not. am. I am the most informal <laughs> boss you will ever see, um, and I think my staff appreciate that. I I don't walk around screaming all day. I don't give orders. I just I manage on a respect level, and I I will treat 
the lowest paid person to the highest paid person with the equal amount of respect. And I get that back and it functions so well that way. Does that mean you experience less turnover perhaps than some of your competitors, some other businesses? I would absolutely say yes. I mean, there's people who have been working there longer than I've been there. They, they were staffed before I came and they're still there and they still offer me so much advice and so much help. Absolutely. Now, is it, is it easy to get comfortable with an employee? You know, like it, like some people that have been there a long time and they know what they do, but yet you you really want them to improve a couple of areas. Uh, do you have difficulty in trying to change some of their, their attitudes or, or, or moving along that way? I, I would say yes, there was times when it was like that. Um, but what I find now, what I do is if there's something I'm not happy with or I don't like, I take someone into my office and I, I talk to them privately. So nobody knows what we're saying. Nobody hears about it. And it's just, this is what I think is wrong. Let's improve this. And it always works. I, as opposed to coming out and yelling and screaming and embarrassing mm -hmm. them. It's just not who I am. So that's the way I manage too. Now, would you, over the years, and you've certainly grown, you've added employees. Was it difficult to find employees? I mean, and, and how did you hire? Do you hire for character? You hire based on a referral? How do you typically, what do you look for in that, well, that next employee? Th the truth, honestly, the easiest way for me to find new employees is to ask people who work there if they happen to know someone who's looking for work. And I think nine out of 10 people, I find that way. Uh, and do you, do you, uh, I, I think that's great because certainly they know the culture because I guess one of the, one of your jobs as, as leader, as owner is to make sure the culture of that environment stays the same. Yes. That's been easy to do. Yes, it is. You know, I have people who work for me from other countries and when, when they bring a friend or a relative or something to come in and work with them that person's already comfortable because they know someone of the same ethnicity and of the same background and they're comfortable right away when they start. I think it's great. Listen, the team certainly, certainly makes a lot, certainly in any retail location, it's the front facing uh, team that, that makes a difference, the customers and customer service. And I know you've been dealing with uh, customers, easy and difficult ones over the years. <laughs> yes. So when we come back uh, from the break, we'll kind of hear a couple of uh, fun stories on, on some of your customer service uh, experiences. Very good. Mitchell Druckmann of Fresser is with us this evening on today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.36, welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. And this evening, Josh, we're chatting with Mitchell Druckmann of Fresser, is a place that uh, that I've known since I was a kid, uh, right on to Carrie and uh, Cone St. Catherine. Uh, they make uh, prepared foods and cater and uh, bakery. And uh, so nearly nearly 30 employees, uh, Mitchell, right? Yes, do we have 26 or 27. Now, you've been around a long time, and Presser's have been around a long time, but certainly there's got to be a marketing aspect to it. you got to, you know, you got to let people or make sure that people kind of are aware that you're there, for at least those that aren't. Do you yeah. do anything special from a marketing standpoint? Well, I'll tell you how it works. Um, I do print media twice a year, um, but the majority of the marketing I did was at the beginning. We had a, a very professionally made website, um, and the same company who did that also made this beautiful catering brochure for me. Um, which gets updated every couple of years. Um, and at the beginning, I would go literally door to door, house to house, putting them in mailbox, mailboxes. Mm -hmm. um, and I went downtown, office building to office building, floor to floor, room to room, handing them out. And, um, and there's no question it worked. I mean, we got a lot of calls through that. 
we got customers. It, it grew that way. Um, but the thing that I'm most lucky about is that mouth-to-mouth -mouth advertising works for me. I, I mean, I'm so blessed that so many people come in, then go out and tell their friends, and they tell mm -hmm. their friends. And I think that the the greatest thing about mouth-to-mouth -mouth advertising is that, first of all, it's free. Um, but second of all, it's... Um, it's so easy because someone you're so much more likely to try something when someone you know has told you that they like it. A referral, a very like absolutely. a referral with a from a warm body absolutely. or warm yeah, absolutely. absolutely definitely yeah. works more. But pounding the pavement at the beginning, uh, and probably if you did it today, it might even bring in some more. Uh, but certainly the the word of mouth, as you say, and of yeah. course no pun intended because we're talking about food. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm sure that works now. I would also think that customer experiences, when people leave happy, not upset, that also helps helps kind of spread the word. Yeah, but sure. over the 22 years that you've been there, uh, I'm sure you've seen some easy customers and some really difficult customers. Uh, are there you know one or two customer experiences that you're willing to share? You know, 99% of the people that come in are great. It's fantastic. <laughs> that 1%. There's that 1%. Um, and there always is in every business. But... Um, I'll give you a short story that sort of sums up customer service to me. Um, it, it happened a couple of years ago. I remember it very well. It was a very cold winter day, and this homeless man comes in, and uh, he's not wearing a jacket. He's cold. He's hungry, and he's asking if we can give him something to eat. And, uh, of course, we, we make these sandwiches every day that we put on sale. And so I told the girls behind the counter, please go give him a sandwich. And while they were doing that, without even asking him, I went over to get him a hot coffee because I just felt like, mm -hmm. you know, this guy needed coffee. Um, so I go over to the machine and I'm pouring the coffee and he's watching me. And I didn't even ask him if he wanted milk or sugar. I just put it in, stirred it up. I brought it over to the counter and he's now a foot away from me on the other side of the counter. I put the hot coffee in front of him. He puts his hand on the mug and the mug is warm. The steam is coming off at the top. And I mean, you can't write this. The guy looks me in the eye and he says, is it fresh? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if I'm getting that from him, you can imagine what I'm getting on a daily from the, basis. From the paying customers. <laughs> yeah. So, But that's know, certainly, I mean, you, you must have experienced uh, times where you really had to come through for, for a customer in, in a pinch or, or yeah. you had to kind of fix something that, that didn't work so well. And yeah. that's really what kind of gives you your reputation. Yeah. I, I have a story, again, a few years ago. Um this woman called up at nine in the morning, <clears throat> excuse me, nine o'clock in the morning. And she needed food for 50 or 60 people because she was having a brunch that morning and she had forgot to order. Hmm. Um, and when she called and she told me that, I just, you know, good luck. I can't help you. Um, but she was desperate and she was pleading and she's like, you know, you've got to help me out. I, she was trying to impress her mother-in-law or I don't mm -hmm. even know what it was. And uh, to make the short story short, we did it. We we had people come from who don't normally do certain jobs. They went into those jobs. People moved around, and we just did everything we could to make it happen. And uh, and we did make it happen. And she got her food on time. And she was so grateful that for weeks after, she would keep calling and saying thank you so much. Like and and those are the stories that make me feel great. And hopefully come in and buy. And of course, word of mouth. Yeah. Now, so when you're 
you you know you have a number of, of team members and they're doing a bunch of different jobs over the years have you created like have things gotten more efficient like have you been able to kind of uh sp- oh, yeah. not speed things up but certainly when you when you have more volume oh, yeah. uh, whether it's in the kitchen or the front yeah it's become a science now we're really good at at managing how things need to be made um but i i know at the beginning and this was even before i was there um but the head chef was telling me the story one day when he first came he was taught by the chef who was there at the time how to make brisket. And um, what he was told was, put it in the oven and check it every 20 minutes till it's done. I just keep checking it. And I, that, like that's ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but um, we've perfected sort of the science of getting food ready on time. It's great. Yeah. Now, everybody's going to the grocery stores today. The food prices are absolutely skyrocketing. How do you deal with your pricing? You know, the, certainly the, the price of your items are going up, uh, and you've been doing this for, for 22 years. So um, are you scientific with your pricing? Are you kind of just looking? Are you, do you look at the competitors? How do you, how do you proactively deal with your pricing? Um, I, I do both of those things. I do look at competitors' pricing, but I look more at my own and less at theirs. Um, I look at theirs because I want to know what's going on and what people are charging. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to risk changing what's already worked for so long so i'm not going to buy a cheaper ingredient in order to make something cheaper in the end it's not going to taste the same so what we do is we really price from the ground up take ingredients take the cost of labor put it all together how much does this item cost and just try and keep it as low as possible even with everything going up do menu items change often is there a lock and key under the recipes? <laughs> yeah. Um, menu prices change when we find something that we think will be great. Um, we have some recipes that we've been selling since the beginning because they're still great. Um, and then we have some things that over the years we find, you know, whether I'm traveling in the States and I find something or whether someone in the store has an idea for something to sell. And we just kind of find what's good and keep making that way. I do have to ask you about the brisket because I've been having it for many years now. And uh, are the rumors true? Is there is there really Coca Cola in the brisket? There really is Coca Cola wow. in the brisket. Yeah, I'd say it's <laughs> secrets out of the bag. Uh, you know, again, you you've been around in the the same location for many years. At successfully, you cater all over. Uh, what about opening other locations? Has that ever crossed your mind? I got to tell you guys that if not every day, then every second day, someone will come in and say, "Why don't you open another store? This place is so great." Why don't you open on the West Island? Why don't you open downtown? Um, Ottawa. A big one is Toronto. People come in from Toronto and shop there all the time, and they say, you've got to open in Toronto. There's nothing like it. You do amazing. Um, I've even been asked to open in New York and Australia. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, that might be a little bit far. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how conditions work in Australia, but um, <laughs> my answer is always the same. It's that I don't feel like Fresher's is something that can be duplicated. Um it's it, it's not like, you know, something that can be franchised like Subway, where they make sandwiches and chips and drinks, and you can open it on every corner. And they do, and they're great, and they've done so well. But at Fresher's, we make 200 items a day. We do catering. We do so many things that I know wouldn't work unless myself and the staff that I have there are doing it. I You couldn't just give the keys to someone in another city and say, do this. It's never going to work. And so that's why we stay at the one. And we're always trying to just keep getting this one better and better. True to yourself, true to form, and true to what Fresser's was, is, and will be. 
Mitchell Druckman from Fresser is with us tonight. Uh, coming up, we'll talk to Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau, about uh, some of the issues uh, encountered when purchasing a business. That's on the way on today's Entrepreneur. For professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. We have Mitchell Druckman, our profile tonight from Fresser's. We'll have uh, Mitchell's one piece of advice for today's Entrepreneur coming up. Uh, but first, uh, let's chat with Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau. And uh, Josh, the uh, the topic is uh, purchasing a business and uh, a lot to do before you actually write the check. And, and you know, uh, Mitch, Mitch started that way. He bought into a business uh, 22 years ago. And uh, we won't go through his part of the story at the moment, but there's so many, so many things to know, so many pitfalls to look out for. Uh, Nick, perhaps you can kind of enumerate, uh, at least at the outset, some of the some of the more important challenges or, or items that that any entrepreneur should look for when purchasing a business. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, you think it, it's not just a simple matter of coming in and agreeing on the price, and here's your check, and, and off you go. Um, the first thing is uh, agreeing on the numbers is are the numbers that you're looking at or you're being told are they any good? So there is a due diligence period uh, that requires you to validate the numbers that you're being told, uh, make sure that the, if the sales are what they are, it's, it's, it's there, um, that the clients are the clients that uh, they're, they're talking about, that they're, they're still keeping their clients. And, and that due diligence period uh, is, is very important. Many people sometimes don't devote the resources or the time to actually verify that. And then you get these surprises uh, that, that have happened time and time again afterwards. Uh, so one is a, a due deal uh, just to start off the process. Uh, assuming that that goes well and, and everything is now uh, at the negotiation level, you now as the, the buyer are, are looking to buy, what am I going to be buying? Um, Mitchell bought into a partnership, and 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 there's issues involved with uh, uh, as a partner in, in a partnership. Uh, you can also be buying um, uh, someone who is an unincorporated employee who's running his own business as well. Or many times in our world, Josh, we run into corporations buying, and, mm-hmm. and you're buying a company. Um, so the how you're going to structure yourself uh, becomes important because it's what is it that I want to buy? I, I'd like to buy assets. I like to buy the the equipment. I like to buy the the furniture. I like to buy the the or, or buy the rights to the lease, as opposed to buying some entity like a partnership or buying a company. Now, what's the biggest? You know, you hear that a lot often that that somebody you know the buyer wants to buy assets, but the seller wants to sell his company. What's the the biggest nuance between the two? Well, there's there's two big things. If I if I decide I'm going to buy. If uh, Fressers is an incorporated entity today, I assume. So if I want to buy now Fressers, I'm going to buy Fressers, Inc. Um, two things really stand to mind. Everything that it's, has ever happened to Fressers, Inc. in the past is now becomes my responsibility. Good, bad, though, or ugly, whatever right. skeletons are in the closet. And your that's liability right. too, I guess. And that's yeah. my li- it's, a, it's a liability issue. That's one big item. The other thing is uh, a question of taxes. Um, uh, there's probably an enormous amount of goodwill with Fressers. Um, uh, and, and if I buy a company, I can't write off that cost. It becomes my it landed cost and that'll stay there. If I buy the assets that make up Fressers, which is again, the goodwill, the name, its webpage, the, the furniture and fixtures, that is a cost that I'm allowed to write off over time. And, and that means something to me. So if I'm paying a hundred dollars today to, or make it a little bit more than $100. If I'm paying a million dollars to buy Fressers, Inc., I might be willing to pay a million, too, to buy the assets, avoid the liability, and get a, get a write-off. 
So there, there's really a lot of things to consider. And I, I think when we when we come back after the break, we'll chat a little bit more about uh, kind of the tax components. And, and of course, you know, assets is you, you want to pay for the recipes, but you really have to pay that much for them. <laughs> Uh, we're talking with Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau, about uh, purchasing a business. And Mitchell Druckmann of Fresters will have his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. On for professional advice with a personal touch, consult Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Mitchell Druckmann of Fresters, his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur is on the way. But first, uh, Josh, chatting with Nick Moretis of Fuller Landau about uh, the uh, pitfalls uh, sometimes of uh, purchasing a business. And, you know, there many instances, we've seen this very often, and certainly post-2008 when certain when profits weren't necessarily as good, the seller always thinks his business is worth far more than the purchaser thinks it's actually worth that he's actually willing to shell out. Uh, and then that, that drives this notion, this concept of an earnout. Um, Nick, perhaps you can talk a little bit, explain earnout and, and the impact that it has. The, the absolutely. Uh, and, it, and it is uh, usually a question of trying to mitigate your risk. You as a buyer um, who's going on, on, on the past and what the past has delivered, uh, the seller who's promoting what the future is going to bring in, and how do you marry the two uh, and come up to a value? And usually we use a nerd out. And a nerd out is basically going to be, uh, right now I'm paying, I'm assuming you're going to make a dollar a profit a year, and I'm going to be willing to pay $5 or $6 for that profit. But um, on, on the chance that you are going to make dollar twenty, thirty, and 40 going over the next several years, um, I'm willing to increase my price to recognize this additional profit that, you, that you're going to make over usually a three to five year period. Um, it, it does a couple of things. It gives more a chance for more money to the seller, and he's going to be happy with it. It also tends to tie in the seller with the company and with the succession and then transition to make sure that that actually happens. Uh, for the buyer, uh, it said, okay, uh, is, is giving him a downside protection that uh, if this thing does go well, yes, I'm going to pay more, but if I get Mitchell to, to stay and work at Fresh's after I bought it and, it and it does succeed, it's a win-win for everybody. So that's with the earnout. You're seeing it more and more. But now, now, just uh, just quickly, when you're selling a business, chances are that you're selling, you're going to have capital gains. Mm. With an earnout. You better make sure the wording is correct because it might not be classified as a capital from, gain. From the buyer's perspective, it's, it'll be what it, it'll be. It's usually the seller who becomes very uh, concerned as to what an earnout is, and and then we go back into well, what type of earnout? Again, what am I buying? Am I buying assets? Am I buying shares? And then yes, they'll be uh, working out as to how the earnout is going to be mechanically calculated becomes an issue. But for the buyer. He's still shelling out a check. It's still part of his acquisition cost. It's the seller who's the most concerned. Just like he doesn't care if the if the seller is going to stay on and and earn money or an employment uh, contract right. or non compete. He doesn't care how the seller is going to be treated for tax purposes. Right. It's just the the buyer, the buyer that. Uh, but so he, that's but, why the buyer can have some uh, some flexibility that if it's going to help the seller get a better tax treatment and for the buyer it's neutral. Well, then it, it's usually a very openness to discuss. Uh, I there there's so many nuances and Absolutely. and certainly uh, the the lawyers are kept busy with all the the length and of agreements tax accountants too. <laughs> and and guys like Nick Moretis too which which we love to listen to. Thanks very much Nick and as we approach the last moment of the show as we do every week we'll turn to uh, Tim Mitchell Drugman of Fressers and uh, ask you Mitch what would be your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. My one piece of advice would be something probably people have heard before. Um, but it's to do something that you're passionate about and that you love to do. 
um, because that's the only way it's going to feel not like work. It's going to feel like something you love to do, and it's it's going to drive you every day. And I think you know we heard that when you when you told the beginning of the story that you know you you went into this, you really you fell into this food business, but you really loved it. You knew it was your you knew it was what you wanted to do after twenty minutes. Yeah. I'll say, Dan, that that my little takeaway is is how Mitch works with his team, and the fact that it's very collaborative. It is it is uh, not a dictatorship uh, by any by any such, and and that everybody has to pull together when they have to pull together, and that management style is something certainly in a retail location where you're dealing with potentially difficult customers on a daily basis is a great management skill to have. So kudos to that. That's my takeaway for the week, Dan. Thanks very much, Mitch. Thank you. Thanks, Mitch. And as a customer, uh, Lupe's smile really goes a long way. So make sure that she's aware because, yes. uh, yeah, your staff is she's staff great. are great. Uh, Mitchell Druckmann of Fresters, thanks for stopping by. And uh, Josh, we're back next Monday night here at 7 p.m. for today's Entrepreneur.